Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Tangential Soup. On today's episode, uh, David and I are going to discuss how best to deal with the cold, our mug and cup preferences and what we like to drink from them, an article about uh, Warren Buffett and his company Berkshire Hathaway, Men in Black, the 20th anniversary, the Kerrigan Castle home being up for grabs, and uh, cheap wine and the delectable app. And I hope you all enjoy it. So, basically, David, it's uh, now in the Sydney winter. It is. And I'm suffering because of it. Well, suffering a lot. The Australian winter, the Southern Hemisphere winter. Yes. Um, But obviously, in Victoria, you you have a different winter to what we have in Sydney. Sometimes in Sydney, the temperature drops below 10 degrees Celsius. (laughs) And it's honestly just indecent. Um, For myself, I, I obviously prefer the warm weather. Um, yes, and every time it does, um, I don't feel that I'm very well equipped to deal with the cold weather. I start shivering. I always get sick at the start of winter. Mm. Just generally a miserable time for me. And my coping mechanisms are mostly just to stay inside a lot of the time, which I know, I know a lot of people do. But uh, I stop exercising as much, and I eat a lot of unhealthy food as well. I tend to comfort eat um, and comfort drink too. And there are a few delicious drinks that I've uh, that I've been drinking this winter. Um, one of them is Glühwein or mulled wine, which is just basically red wine with some spices and some sweeteners in it uh, that's then been heated up. And another one is something called a hot toddy. Have you ever heard of those, David? I've heard the expression, but I couldn't tell you what it is. So it's basically a whiskey drink with cinnamon, uh, lemon, and tea as well. So okay. You, you pour whiskey into some tea and then you flavor it with cinnamon. And sugar as well, or honey. Uh, it's a very wintry drink. It's uh, it's quite nice uh, if you get it right. If you get it right, yeah. If I you feel like right, you'd have yeah. to get the ratios right. You would, yeah. But I mean, with all these things, are all recipes on the internet, so uh, mm. you can you can hit that uh, perfect balance of whiskey and tea and lemon and cinnamon and honey pretty well. Mm. And um, kind of moving on from this particular topic of suffering in the cold <laughs> is. Uh, Drinking from mugs, which was a, uh, a topic you suggested, David. Well, yeah, just uh, sort of mug and cup preferences. I only put this on because my brother has this huge cup that he loves and has used for the last few years and has Gardern written on the side, a misspelling of garden um, <laughs> because it's out of Korea. It has all these like little garden implements and little flowers and things on it. <laughs> But it is a seriously massive cup, like two times the normal cup, probably. And sort of upwards, lengthways, not width. But yeah, he loves that thing. And I always chuckle a little bit when I see the spelling. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's fair enough. Um, I'm a big fan of giant mugs as well. Um, I don't actually really have one at the moment. Uh, My housemate actually has has, has two giant mugs, and I I tend to steal one of them to make a giant cup of tea in. But... um, Myself, I don't. I don't own a giant mug. I my favorite mug used to be. I had a mug with Bemo from Adventure Time. Oh yeah, the little uh, game box type thing. Yeah, um, and that was awesome. But I, I don't actually know what happened to that mug. It was quite <laughs> sad when it's uh, when I lost it. Lost in a move somewhere. Bit of a dark period of my life. Yeah, well, I, th- I think it, it was lost when I moved house. Mm. And now I no longer have a Bemo mug. Oh, 
Yeah. Do you like a sort of a taller mug? No, you see, I like a wider mug. Wider mug? I'm a wide mug. But I, I don't like it wide where the, where, the, where the rim kind of pokes outwards. I like it wide where the rim is either poking upwards or poking inwards. Because I think, you know, some people, sometimes they have the, the big mugs, but they're almost bowlish in appearance. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And the, where the rim is kind of almost poking outwards. But I, just, I don't know. I don't like that. I don't feel that the liquid is as well contained in, uh, in a wide-brimmed mug as it is in a shallow-brimmed mug. What about wall thickness? Do you like it thin or thick? I like it thick. I like it nice and thick. It just has a sturdier feel to it. Plus, um, I tend to think that it holds in heat a bit better too. Well, yeah, that's definitely the case. Mm. Don't necessarily know if they always feel as nice to drink from, though. The thick wall ones. I don't know. It has, it has a nice, nice, sturdy, almost stoic feel to it. Stoic. Stoic mug. Yeah. Anyway, that's that suits my uh, suits my mug preference, and certainly my uh, my drink preference as well. Because I like I like a good cup of tea. You and I, David, we're both tea drinkers. Absolutely. I've been I've just been having the uh, just the Australian breakfast has been my main brew of choice at home, which is a nice a nice hearty rich tea, which is what I which is what I enjoy. Warren Buffett has always been a, a pretty big interest to me, as, as I'm sure he is to a lot of people, because you know he's a He's done very well for himself through through a lot of investments, um, and he's he's still investing very successfully. He he did very well out of the GFC. I think he he bought quite heavily into Goldman Sachs when their share price plummeted, and then obviously they got bailed out quite heavily, and then they've kind of risen back into power. And he made a lot of money out of that deal. But basically, this is from an article titled "Warren Buffett is now the largest owner of two of the world's biggest banks," by Aiken Oidelli. And it was published to the Business Insider on June 30th, 2017. And um, I've actually done a bit of background research about this article. So basically what it's saying is um, the company that um, Warren Buffett is the CEO of, which is called Berkshire Hathaway, is now the biggest owner of two of the world's largest banks and two of the largest, the two largest banks in America, which are the Bank of America and Wells Fargo, which is actually interesting because I'd Obviously, I've never been to America. I don't spend a lot of time looking at banks in America, but I've never actually heard of Wells Fargo before. No. Um, but in terms of market capitalization, they're the 10th largest bank in the world. Hmm. And uh, the Bank of America is the ninth largest bank. And uh, they are first and second in America as, as being the two largest banks. Hmm. Basically, what, what uh, he's done is he is now, um, or Berkshire Hathaway is now the largest owner of these two banks. So it means they, they own the largest amount of shares out of all the shareholders in these two companies. Um, sorry, I actually got those statistics wrong. Wells Fargo is the third largest bank in America and the Bank of America is the second largest bank in America. Okay, so not long um, And I think uh, JP or Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan is the largest bank in America, which again, I didn't even know was a bank. I thought they were investment companies. Yeah, but at least I have heard of those, I suppose. So it makes sense yeah. that they'd be the largest, or one of those would be. But um, what kind of interested me in this article, more than the fact that this large conglomerate, which is what Berkshire Hathaway is, purchasing these banks is about Berkshire Hathaway itself. Um, so basically, Buffett started Berkshire Hathaway. They were originally a joining of two textile manufacturing companies um, back in 1960-something. And um, Warren Buffett 
uh, bought some shares in, in those companies. And I think he was buying based on the share price doing quite well, but the company itself was actually failing. And um, at one point, I think he was offered by the owner of uh, Berkshire Hathaway the option of buying back all his shares at a certain price. And a verbal agreement was given on buying the shares at one price. And then when the written agreement was given to Warren Buffett, it was actually a slightly lower price. So Warren Buffett got annoyed at this and uh, just decided to, to then buy a controlling share in the company and fire the person who had, who had made this offer, which he did. And then um, he tried to stay in textile manufacturing, which didn't work. So uh, he then turned it into other business interests, including insurance and investment. And um, now I think it's the third largest conglomerate in America. Um, and I have some t- statistics here. So the company itself has t- uh, six, $620 billion in assets and $283 billion in equity, mm. which is quite a lot of money, of which Warren Buffett himself owns 18% mm. in terms of shares. It is an interesting transition from textile company to investment firm. It's funny how it seems like everything started like that, though. You know, it doesn't really matter what your roots are. You kind of go into anything with money. Yeah. And that's obviously what Warren Buffett has done. I mean, I remember hearing one of his earlier invest one of his earliest investments was a farm. He bought a farm when he was younger. Hmm. Obviously because he saw money there. Yeah. And, you know, he saw money in this uh in this textile manufacturing company, so he bought there and then just decided to move on from there, move into insurance and other things, and then obviously he's he's picked up a lot of investors along the way. But this company itself has averaged a growth in book value of 19% per annum since 1965, which is absolutely massive. Yeah. It seems like that and Mr. Buffett himself probably have quite an influence over the economy then. Oh, absolutely they do, yeah. That's what a lot of these bigger investment companies can do. They can actually affect how the economy is going by either buying buying and investing in companies and they can take over sections of the market by investing in these in these companies. Berkshire Hathaway owns a lot of airlines at the moment, I think, or a lot of oh, interest yeah. in airlines. Oh, yeah, I have heard of Hathaway and airlines put together. Mm. I think they own a lot of United Airlines and American Airlines um, and just, yeah, a lot of American Airlines because obviously that's where they see uh, profit for some reason. Mm. Which makes sense, I guess, because people have got to travel. I guess. I don't know. Airlines never seem to do much better than slight profit for some reason. It's an expensive operation. Well, yeah, I suppose. And what with the cheaper airlines coming in and undercutting the, the bigger airlines, it's hard to make profit. I think if you really wanted to make profit from them, you'd have to you'd have to jump on them when they're when they're still very young. Like I'm sure if you jumped on Tiger Airways when it was still very young, you would have you would have made a pretty penny. Mm-hmm. But now they've kind of stuck in their place in the market and you know, like it's, it's going to be hard for them to move from there, I, I would think. Maybe that's more a strategic asset. Well, look, perhaps it is. Because it is quite important, like you say, in terms of shifting people around. And that business is never going to go away, even if it's not hugely profitable. Well, yeah. I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't imagine that Warren Buffett would hold something just to the point of holding something in a particular market. Like I'm sure he has a reason for it. Mm. What his reason is, though, is a bit of a mystery. But um, yeah, it's just interesting to see how these 
huge conglomerate companies work and how they move around and you know the fact that they can one company like that can hold such a huge section of the banking the american banking system in its hand which is which is what they do and i mean they they also have shares in a lot of the other of the other american banks too it's a bit scary i'm surprised there isn't like some sort of law against two different banks that are huge that are, I guess, independently operated to an extent, but are actually subsidiaries of a uh, larger company? Well, I mean, they're not necessarily subsidiaries. It's just that this investment company has a, a controlling stake in, in both of them. Well, I, you see, I'm not actually sure it's a controlling stake. They have they have the biggest share out of everyone who owns shares. Oh, right. Banks, yeah, I'm misreading this. It's the largest owner, but not necessarily a controlling stake. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I'm not... I mean, obviously, because they have such a large stake in the company they would have quite a big say in what happens to the company but mm. not necessarily controlling stake but i mean perhaps that's all they need perhaps all they need is this large share and then perhaps one other large shareholder with similar interests and then they would they would have the ability to control these banks regardless yeah which is which is perhaps perhaps the point of holding it mm. but yeah i guess it's just just the way you can do things in america yes the uh, capitalism is a bit more liberal there oh yeah very, uh, very liberal. The next thing we had to talk about, and I thought I might let you have a uh, chin wag about this one, was the 20th anniversary of Men in Black. Uh, yes. Well, I just thought this was kind of an interesting article. Um, where did it come from? Oh, the Verge, of course. <laughs> and this was an interview with roboticist Mark Setrican. Is that how you would? Cetrakean, maybe? Cetrakean, Mark Cetrakean. And the article was by Kwame Opam. I feel like we should practice these names before we actually read them out. They're ridiculous. I wish they were easy names, but they're not. (laughs) But anyway, I was just talking about um, how a lot of the aliens in the original Men in Black movie came to be. The director for the film barry sonnefeld had a rough idea of what he was trying to create but he had no previous experience doing sci-fi stuff he was more of a comedic director which i think that definitely shines through in the writing but it meant that the props department and the people you know in charge of making all the aliens and coming up with the design for the film really had exceptionally little to go on and so, essentially, they just started making stuff and then showing Barry and the rest of the team. And, you know, they'd come back with either vague suggestions of how to make it better or change color or whatever. But a lot of the things they thought were so cool just from what the props department made and had nothing to do with the script originally, they wrote into the script because they were so impressed by it. Um, there's some tiny worms in the film that came about like that. And maybe one of the most iconic aliens, which uh, seems like a man at first, and then it opens up and it's a robot skeleton driven by a tiny alien. That was the invention of this uh, Mark character that they interview. I just thought that was interesting that some of these really iconic designs came from absolute freedom from the props department and not like an overall vision by the director and producer. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously it just shows the value of letting people express themselves creatively and uh, just going with the story from there. Yes. 
because apparently that was never that common. And now, of course, a lot of these things are done by CGI, so it's a whole different process. Mm. But, yeah, you give uh, people a bit of freedom and sometimes they come up with some great stuff. I'm sure that sometimes they come up with a lot of bad stuff as well. <laughs> well, I'm sure there was a lot of things that didn't make the cut and he did talk about it in the article as well, it being very hectic because there was very little direction, you know, a lot of long hours and a lot of back and forth, which is not necessarily always the case. If you have a clearer direction, you can just build something to the, to the spec and make small adjustments as opposed to making a heap of things, chucking half of it out and then going with what you've got left. Okay. Uh, yeah, I see where you're coming from there. I think um, one of the things that really struck me about the article was I didn't realize that Men in Black was that iconic film. I mean, I remember watching it as a kid. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't remember it being super amazing either necessarily, but I do remember really enjoying it. But yeah, I think they do talk it up a little bit more than it probably is. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, the, the the thing that I really remember from the from the film was just how, I mean, I suppose Tommy Lee Jones is always like this, but he's always so dry. And just watching him is sometimes a bit a bit of a chore in some ways. Yeah, I mean. yeah, I guess that's true. But it, in this particular case, he's playing the straight man, so it, I think it works with uh, opposite Will Smith. Yeah, yeah, well, that's true. But probably not in everything. No. <laughs> yeah, I think it, was, it just tends to be a bit tedious. Mm. What was your favourite childhood movie on that particular topic? I mean, I love The Lion King, still do. It's a great one. It's animated film, but the soundtrack especially is great. Oh, I would say my favourite would be an animated film of some description or another. Oh, yeah. Probably Shrek, I'd say. Shrek was probably my favourite. Yes, you do love Shrek. Shrek or Shrek 2? Shrek 2 was probably my absolute favourite. Mm. I remember uh, outside the Theatre Royal in Castle May, they had the sign, and it had the two ears off the side of the sign. Oh, yeah. Ears. <laughs> I just remember, I remember looking at it at the time and thinking, wow, it's genius, how do they do that? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I was a young Contra kid. We can move on to the Kerrigan's Castle House being up for sale. I'll leave this one to you because I, I actually don't know anything about the, what it was for a TV series or a film, was it? Oh, Alex, come on, you know the castle. Oh, it's a I, movie. yes. I remember Dad showing to me once and I remember them putting alcohol in a car and that's my only memory from the movie. I think sometimes... Iconic movies can be really crap, David, and I think that one was probably really crap, from my memory. No, it was great, starring Michael Caton. You know, then the fight to have the house stay where it is when they wanted to, to expand the airport, and, you know, a fight with the Constitution involved and the lawyer character. It's a classic Australian film. I just I find Australian films are just... They tend to be a bit grim, don't you think? Well, I mean, it was grim at times, but I think generally uplifting film because they win in the end. Huh, okay. And it put Bonnie Doon on the map. I don't think it's my thing, David. I'm just going to judge it before I've really seen it properly. You should watch it again. I don't know if I can. I don't know if I could do that to myself. It has Eric Banner in it. 
Oh, wow, it does. I'm still really holding the Hulk against him. A young Eric Banner. Ugh. Yeah, no. It was a low-budget film, and uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I haven't seen it for a long time, but I know I've seen it two or three times, and every time I enjoyed it. So, And look at its rating. Ugh. It's critical reception. It's 88% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Is that a critic's? Critics score or an audience score? Oh, it's actually got 92% audience score. Yeah, see, how good is that? Ugh, no. I don't think you're remembering it properly. You should go back and rewatch that, Alex, and then tell me you dislike it after that. Why? <laughs> okay, all right, I might. I'm, I'm not actually going to guarantee that one. It's not a very long film. It's only 85 minutes. It's 85 minutes of my life that I may never get back, David. It's pretty great. And anyway, the house from that film, the iconic house, the one that they were trying to save, is up for sale if you want to buy it. Not the land, but you can buy the house and relocate it wherever you want. Yeah, that's a bit of a, a bit of an odd one. Um, the owner just wants to get rid of it. Someone really should buy it and turn it into a bit of a tourist attraction, though. Yeah, okay. Well, I don't know. I'm not sold. I'm not I'm not sold on this idea. I can't believe not only do you think you don't like it, but you can't even remember it properly. This is one of the iconic Australian films. I just do you, do you know what it is? I just find the um like the those those iconic Australian films, those those really Australian films that were done in the past, I just find them so dreary and depressing. This is not a depressing film though, it's a comedy. Yeah, but I mean even when they're even when they're trying to be funny, it's just sad. <laughs> what do you find sad about them? Huh? You know, I just—I don't know. They just make me sad because even if, especially if they're low budget, the lower their budget, the sadder I find them. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, but this is just telling like a really down-to-earth story, so it doesn't need a crazy budget because there's no, you know, special effects or anything. Hmm. No, I can't do it, David. <laughs> so next we have a racism video by... How did you pronounce his name? Uh, it's... it's um, Taiki Waititi? Tahiki Waititi. Ah, uh, Waititi, yes. Who is a uh, quite a funny bloke. Comedian actor. Um, from New Zealand. And basically... In the video, he asks everyone to do their part for racism. And uh, the point he makes is that, you know, you don't have to be very racist. Just a little bit of racism is fine. It all helps the cause. Yes. Of racism. Now, obviously, being a comedian, he's trying to make a point here. And the point is exactly what he says. He's trying to sell racism. In the video, it's like he's trying to sell racism as being a good thing that we want to continue. But in reality, I think most people would probably agree that it's not. No. Yes, a tongue-in-cheek video that's quite sarcastic. And I like the main point that it says that it doesn't advantage you in any particular way, but it does have an impact on others. And I think that is probably the main point and the best point of that video. That really there's no reason to do it. You're exactly right. To be racist. And so why would you? You're exactly right. Yes, we'll have that in the show notes if anyone wants to watch it. It's quite entertaining and makes a strong point. 
And uh, another video of his, which you have just showed to me, is uh, a scene from the larger movie Hunt for the Wilder People. Yes, he's, he's barely in it except for this one scene, but it is classic. And it's uh, the scene in the church, which we'll also have in the show notes, where he is trying to make a point. Yes. Not very clear what his point is. <laughs> yes, we shouldn't we shouldn't ruin it by explaining it. Just go watch it. I think you'll enjoy it. But he's a very funny man. He is. We very much appreciate it. Now, as I've, I think, previously mentioned, perhaps only in passing. That you're becoming more and more of a wine snob? Yes. Um, but part of being a true wine snob is buying expensive wines which I don't really have the money for. <laughs> so I'm become, I'm trying to become a cheap wine snob <laughs> and uh, find nice cheap wines. And so far, I've actually done pretty well. You get some winners and you get some losers, and that's just going to be the way it goes when you get cheap wine. Mm. Um, but I have found a couple of winners, and a really good way to keep track of the wines you drink is to use an app. And an app I've been using is called Delectable. Basically what it does is you can actually just take a picture as with as with both things, you can take a picture of the um, of the wine bottle, and then it'll identify the wine, and um, and then you can rate it, and then it just keeps track of the wines you've been drinking. Okay, so is it just like a, a list? Do you share it with people? Is there any sort of social aspect to it? There, there is a social aspect. Yeah, um, so you can have friends on there. Um, you can follow people on it. You can see the featured wines and the trending wines, and and then you can kind of, I guess, look through them and just see if you see anything that you'd uh, that you'd like. Is this only for wine? Uh, I believe this is only for wine. Yes. It's an interesting name. If it's so just for wine, there's wine, champagne. Yeah, I think it's just 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 wine, wine-like drinks. I don't think champagne is a wine. What I know. Feels like it's ripe for expansion. Into like fine mm. cheeses and things. Um, actually, that's a good point. To be honest, mm. we should make a competitor. We should. <laughs> that's a good point. With all um, our oodles of time. Yes. <laughs> all of that time. Uh, yeah. So that's uh, that's that's one way that I've been spending my time. Quite a uh, quite a cool way to spend it, I think, in some ways. Any more cool craft beer? Uh, no, I haven't been back to that place, but, um, I have, uh, yeah, I have, I've been meaning to get back there. I just haven't really been drinking much wine. Uh, sorry, much beer. Cause I don't really feel like beer is a super wintry drink. Okay. Cause you've got to have it cool. Mostly. Yeah. Well, even though if you do, if you do go out in Sydney, um, beer will be what you will drink in most cases. Cause that's, that's all people in Sydney know how to drink. <laughs> Not very sophisticated. Oh, look, I don't know. Maybe, maybe some people would call it unsophisticated. I, um, I just think that maybe it's all people know. They don't understand that there can be other delicious drinks. Yeah, I mean there are cocktails, but everything's cold in Sydney. I mean for good reason because for most of the year cold drinks are very appropriate. But um, for this time of year, even if you go out to to bars, a lot of the bars will still be serving cold beer. Can you just get one of those ones that are on fire? <laughs> uh, I don't know what they serve on fire, to be honest. No, I don't know what it is either. You just see it on the movies. You know, they go, and they slide yeah. it over to you, and then you've got to blow it out before you drink it. Yeah, I'm 
don't know what the logic behind that is. I don't know if it makes it taste better, but um, yeah. No, I've never had one of those, to be honest. I'm not sure I would. No? Do I really need a flaming drink? Does anybody need a flaming drink in their life? Well, I don't think anyone needs it. <laughs> it only exists for the pure majesty of it. The spectacle. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'll give you that. And the ability Maybe. to impress others that you can yeah. drink fire. <laughs> I mean, okay. I'm guessing. All right. They're quite good guesses, David. I think you might be onto something there, actually. <laughs> Thanks again for joining me this week, Alex. Not a problem, David. Pleasure as always. You can follow us at Tangential Soup on Twitter or join our Slack channel to join in the conversation. Consider supporting us on Patreon or leaving us a review on iTunes. And we will see you next week. Bye. Ciao. Can, just a side note, completely unrelated to this, I can smell my roast chicken coming through the house. Wafting gently. Mm. Wafting gently. Ooh, hang on, I might just go check on it. Sorry about that. I thought I could. Thought maybe it was smoking. It was going to set up a fire alarm, but it wasn't. That's no, alright. Decided to, I put the veggies in with it now, just to save me to get up again. Yep. No, that's good. So, what's your roast for today? Uh, chicken. Chicken. Just a chicken. It's got some uh, sweet potato, some potato, potato, and some carrot to go with it. And um, I've actually chopped up some broccoli too, which I'm going to chuck in at probably about. Six fifteen, maybe or so. Oh yeah, mm, six six o'clock, six ish, some sometime around that. With a lemon stuffing. Uh, I didn't actually get a lemon for today. Um, I don't think it makes any difference though, so I just kind of deserted <laughs> that idea. I actually forgot to drizzle the chicken itself because what I do is I put the chicken in for half an hour, mm. uh, and then I put the rest of the veggies in with it for another hour. Mm. Um, and I actually have quite a lot of veggies today, so they were kind of piling up next to the chicken, but it'll be all right and um yeah usually i put olive oil like a drizzle over the chicken itself but i didn't do it this time so that was why i was kind of a bit worried i thought maybe it was going to start smoking uh yeah dry out a bit mm. yeah but i've, I've just so it's all good seems okay yeah and i've i've got some like pre-made portuguese spice mix which i just kind of dashed over it all so okay yeah, yeah sounds mm. good a bit simpler than your previous fancy ones. Yeah, look, there's a lot to be said about a nice chicken roast, though. I mean, it's just such good, decent food. Yes. You know, I'll make a nice chicken gravy to go with it, and uh, yeah, it'll be, it'll be top. Do you use it throughout the week to make sandwiches or whatever? Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. I don't tend to make sandwiches out of it. I'll just take it in roast form and then just have it with the, the veggies there. Yeah. Yeah, it's all, it's all good, though. I like I like my Sunday roast tradition. I think it's I think it's a good one. Yeah, no, definitely. Mm. Especially in this weather. Oh yeah. It's the uh it's the good stuff. <laughs>